It's FAQ NYC Off Cycle, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city, steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm executive producer and co-host Harry Siegel, and in this episode, you'll be hearing the city deputy editor Alyssa Katz talking with Anne-Marie Gray, executive director of the group Open New York about how and why that organization has been pressing to make it easier to develop new housing in this city. Let's jump right in. Thanks, Harry. My interview with Anne-Marie Gray of Open New York today is the latest in my series of conversations I'm calling What is New York For?, in which I talk with creators and writers and advocates and others about New York City's future coming out of the COVID crisis into a world where life is lived more online than ever. Open New York, established in 2018, is a nonprofit group that is pressing for a climate more conducive to housing development in New York City. Their agenda aligns closely with that of Mayor Eric Adams, who has said he aims to greatly accelerate the production of housing in what he calls the city of yes by rethinking regulations and encouraging creative reuse of basements, office buildings, and other opportunities. Their profile is growing as community groups and developers clash over projects from QNS and Astoria to a South Street seaport tower to what is now a truck depot in East Harlem and push back against projects as par for the course, even as New York City's housing crisis deepens. Anne-Marie, welcome to the show. Tell us about Open New York and yourself and why you decided not so long ago that you wanted to run this organization. Sure, and thank you so much for having me. So Open New York is a pretty young grassroots membership-based organization that it started just a few years ago to be a, really be a counterforce to many of our most affluent and frankly of exclusionary neighborhoods that were saying no to um, uh, making more room for people and, and adding housing. Um, I came on as executive director last fall after spending nearly a decade working on housing in various um, government roles, uh, most recently at City Hall, where I covered land use and housing policy for the last couple of years. Because I really felt like the biggest barrier right now is is not one of you know technical policy ideas, but it's a political one. And we need to build the biggest and most powerful coalition possible to, frankly, force our elected officials to be actually passing policies at the scale needed to address the housing affordability crisis much more aggressively. People people really can't afford rent, and there are a lot of different um, a lot of different problems that we have to be solving. So, a few weeks ago, Open New York released its 2023 housing policy agenda, and it isn't entirely what I expected. And, and frankly, that's one reason I invited you on FAQ NYC to uh, talk about it. Um, I expected things that are in there, like increase the floor area ratio to allow for bigger development, which is a an issue pending in in Albany. Um, but there's also some surprises in there. Um, for instance, Open New York supports the Good Cause Bill uh, in the state legislature, which would essentially set caps on rent increases even for apartments outside rent regulation and require uh, lease renewals for tenants in most cases. And you're also supporting the City Council's Fair Choice for Housing Act, which prohibits discrimination based on people's criminal records when they're seeking housing. Um, so what led Open New York to support these policies and, and how does this kind of tenant advocacy fit into your mission? to uh, promote development of housing? So Open New York started really focusing on when it, and it's in its infancy, it started focusing on individual projects. And frankly, that's also what I worked on at the city a lot of the time. 
Um, but it just really is so clear to me, we can't fight the housing crisis project by project, and we really need a more comprehensive and holistic approach. And we really have to be looking at the at kind of city scale policies, but especially state level policies, which New York as a state has really not grappled with. And we've seen a lot in other states around the country focused on sort of pro-housing reforms. So we put out our first kind of comprehensive city and statewide agenda at the beginning of January. It centers exclusionary zoning and needing to increase the supply of housing in a lot of different ways, because that is absolutely just the core problem that um, New York City and state really have just not built nearly, nearly enough housing for decades. But it also includes, you know, a holistic approach that includes tenant protections, it includes social housing, it includes housing discrimination. There are people really hurting right now, and we don't see all of these things necessarily in conflict. There are details to work through in every single bill and every single thing that we put out there. But writ large, we really feel like this is, we, we need an aggressive all of the above approach. We can do all of these things. And we're really gearing up to keep pushing every level of government to just really pass things at the scale that's needed. So I have to say, when I heard about those policy proposals I just mentioned, it struck me as like, maybe this is a, a an attempt to try to change the political valence of uh, how the pro-housing development agenda uh, kind of gets absorbed in New York. But, you know, often you've had people on the left who've been... Uh, opponents of development in a lot of instances suggesting that it's tied to gentrification, tied to displacement. There's been a narrative it's been a, we've had for the past generation that's been linked to some examples that are pretty powerful, such as the Williamsburg-Greenpoint uh, rezoning and, and other experiences people have had. And so, I mean, is it is it about this? Is it, is it about the um, an attempt to kind of change and or broaden who the coalition is that's supporting lowering barriers to housing development, or if not, like sort of, yeah, you know, why embrace these these pro-tenant proposals? Yeah, I really believe in everything that we put in our housing agenda. Um, and, you know, it was a, a, a larger, it was a, a big effort to sort of nail down exactly what was part of that. And I do think that we're at a moment where, you know, the, the politics have been so so tricky and have really not resulted in the type of broader coalitions that are centering the fact that we just desperately need more housing and we need a lot of different ways of providing housing stability for people. Um, so I think longer term, we've also seen you know models in other parts of the country where they're tying zoning reforms to tenant protection. So this is not this is not necessarily even new territory for the pro housing movement. But I, I really just fundamentally believe that kind of all the this five things that we outlined here writ large is the the type of lane and the type of coalition, the type of sets of policies that we need to be pushing forward as a package that just quite hasn't existed to date. Um, and we really see, I mean, renters are not, 70% of New Yorkers, they're they're really vulnerable. Um, the reality of you know evictions and landlords jacking up rents is real. And you know, um, building more housing and making sure we have protections for tenants that are there now. We just, we really need to be doing all of these things. Um, and again, it, it's kind of hard to to overstate how little housing New York City is built and why that 
still is at the center. And we need to keep finding lots of different ways to make that clear and to focus on the places that have not been doing their part. I mean, we have some of our most affluent centrally located neighborhoods in New York City have lost housing over the last decade. And we have some of the most exclusionary suburbs in the nation. And we built less housing per capita than San Francisco over the last decade. I mean, I think the depth of the crisis and the, the breadth of the tools needed to get out of it just really require looking at all of these things together. And uh, where does Open New York get its funding from? I know, you know you've had opponents to, develop, to development accusing uh, your group of being basically a front for the real estate industry. Like, is there any truth to that in any way? Uh, we've been we've been called all sorts of things. <laughs> um, uh, and frankly, I mean, I come out of deep um, public sector. I come at this as an interest from fair housing. I hired a policy director who also just used to cover fair housing as a lawyer for the city. Um, my political director uh, used to cover labor unions. Um, our uh, director of organizing came out of homelessness advocacy. So that is really not reflective of both our staff as, and including a lot of our members, a lot of our board. And funding comes from a philanthropy that's really focused on land use reform. So it's, you know, we've we've gotten all of those uh all of those accusations, but they're just not true. So, so back to the uh, policy agenda. It also includes some real food for thought that uh, about the existing state of zoning and other regulations. And uh, like it starts out with something that really struck me. It says, "Open New York will be advocating um, to allow three and four family homes and small apartment buildings." And I, I saw that and thought, "What?" Like, you can't build those now? Is it, in fact, uh, not possible in New York City to build three- and four-family homes or small apartment buildings or or at least prohibitive to do that? That's absolutely true. And something that's really interesting when you start to talk about this with people is a lot of what we're calling for, it, it, it was already built, and then we prohibited it. So these are a lot of these, they're small apartment buildings on lots where it's Literally, you have an apartment building next door and it's illegal to build another one next to it. Um, and I think there's often this sense that you either have, you know, one home on a lot or you have a 50-story apartment tower that's shiny and glass and you'll never be able to afford it. And there's just so many things about uh, the types of solutions we can explore and that we currently prohibit um, that, you know, from a backyard cottage where an aging grandparent can live to, you know, we also, we used to allow smaller studio apartments in things called single room occupancies in a lot of places that are especially good for sort of homeless or transitional housing. We also banned those, right? Um, so there's just a lot of unnecessary and outdated barriers that don't even reflect how the city's built today that prevent some of the simplest and least expensive types of housing from being built. Not in some parts of the city, but we are calling for it. There's no reason these should not be allowed in every part of the city. Okay. And I was just curious, there's this um, phrase, Yimby, or yes, in my backyard, which is a play on the classic, not in my backyard phrase that describe people who oppose development in their communities. Um, does Open New York embrace the Yimby label or uh, reject that? Uh, open New York's, you know, people have a lot of different associations with the term Yimby or not. Uh, me and a lot of people in our group completely identify that way. I think that, you know, we're for a really wide range of things and not and beyond some of the worst stereotypes of that, you know, it kind of has like a tech bro stereotype. Um, and so I honestly, I, um, I think 
we generally embrace it and it's really not not a problem. We're also just really focused on our set of policy proposals that are that we hope really can be inclusive of people no matter what they call themselves. That's not the point. Well, getting back to a line of thought I started down um, a couple minutes ago, um, I do think that one reason that new development and new housing development does get so much pushback in so many communities is that there really is a lot of kind of uh, bad experience um, and even trauma from the last generation or so of developments and certain things that have happened that I think are pretty undeniable realities. And, and to just give some examples, I did mention the Williams Group for Greenpoint development, which was this kind of signature Bloomberg era rezoning where affordable housing was incentivized but not required. And even in its planning um, was projected to lead to displacement of industry and tenants. And that's exactly what had happened. And it really transformed that that neighborhood. Um, you've had super tall towers with, you know, and, and other sort of pied-a-terre real estate that's really taken over large chunks of Manhattan and unlike Canada, you know, we don't have restrictions about foreign ownership and we don't have a pied terre tax. There's really not a lot kind of stopping outside investment. And you even have HDFCs, which are these affordable co-ops that were, you know, were supposed to be for low-income people, they're income restricted. We're pretty notoriously, and Bloomberg News did a great expose on this. Um, people with cash can just come in and buy the apartments um, and have low incomes because they're artists or students or what have you, but they can just go ahead and do this. So I'm giving these as examples of we've had a history not so long ago of housing development or redevelopment that um, the people with the biggest bags of cash get in and everyone else is locked out. So this premise that new housing will be for you or even that the new housing will absorb demand so that other housing will be freed up and that will be your housing. Um, when it comes to this kind of um, investment-driven and, and, frankly, global influx of capital New York City has seen in the last generation, that hasn't borne out in people's experience. And there's kind of there's a, a, a need for people to hear and experience something different than that to be able to be open to a new way of thinking about development. So throwing all that back to you, and I know that's a lot to put on your shoulders, but I wanted to ask, like, when you're when you're proposing, okay, let's promote new development so that New Yorkers have places to live, like, why should they believe that that housing will be for them? It's um, it's a lot of, you know, a lot of things that I've talked with people about for a while now. And I think there are a couple of components that I want to talk about. I think first, some of those trends that you've talked about, um, they are they are issues. They are issues that require a various sets of like policy solutions. We actually also put out a proposal on um, a set of policy proposals around the vacant apartments issue, which is also something that's been talked about in a similar vein that also addresses comprehensive property tax reform. We have really inequitable property taxes. I think HDFCs is a legacy problem that 100% needs to be revisited. It's also a relatively small number of units. And I think that what's what's really important here is to put, put this in context of scale and also put this in the context of history of New York City. So there's no way, like, there's no way that we don't at least solve a large chunk of the problem by figuring out how we can build more and a more diverse range of there is research that does show that most new housing is actually filled up by locals and that that opens up more space in existing housing and reduces some of those pressures. But that is, you know, that takes time. The amount, the, the depth of the housing crisis right now is such that it will take us a while to um, 
to add enough housing. And so this is also exactly why we have a more holistic platform that is focused on, you know, tenant projections for people that are hurting right now and, and discrimination that's letting people out of housing that exists right now. I think a couple other points to mention here is that we can figure out ways to make housing more affordable for people if it exists, right? But if it doesn't exist, we have no chance of doing that. So for example, there's ways to add different types of city subsidy, different types of housing um, affordability requirements, which are now required uh, under um, a policy called mandatory inclusionary housing that passed in the last administration that wasn't in place during the Greenpoint Williamsburg rezoning that you mentioned. We can also up the supply of vouchers to make sure that people have ways to get into the new housing that is built. But there's no there's no version of the solution that doesn't also include building a lot more housing. I think one other thing to, to note is there is the sense that we kind of all new housing is only um, big, big luxury buildings, right? But that is that is what everyone is used to from the past 20 years. And frankly, I do think that some of that is the result of downzonings that happened in the Bloomberg area. Much of the housing that we all live in that's older was built over, you know, over the last hundred years. A lot of these are small apartment buildings that frankly were built by smaller scale home builders in a world where it wasn't quite so um, expensive, quite so complicated, quite so political to even build one other apartment building, right? So I think that there are, it's a, it, it is a very good point and it's, it's understandable. I think that there are so many layers um, as to why we're in that situation. There's some misinformation out there exactly about exactly what happens. But the root of it is still is that we have built so much less housing to even have some of the more creative options about how we solve the problem. So I I want to ask about rezonings and just to fill in listeners um, who who may not fully appreciate all this. The um, you know the way uh, rezonings work in New York City, meaning permissions to build either build housing in the first place or to increase the amount of housing that can be allowed on a particular property, it goes through a, a land use review procedure that includes the city council. And while technically each proposal needs to go before an actual city council vote. In practice, the reality within the council's culture and politics is that the local member in the district that is uh, the site of the project effectively has veto power um, in what's often referred to as member deference. Um, so I wanted to just mention that as some background here to how the rezoning process works and also a big barrier to getting certain uh, projects through. So I want to start out with, I guess, the sort of what I see as sort of signs that the council culture on rezonings is evolving. And I, I believe Open New York was involved in at least some of this recent action. Um, you know, under under Mayor de Blasio, we saw the rezoning in Gowanus, Brooklyn, that was very, uh, very much centered on a, a community participation process and included a lot of affordable housing. Also in Soho and NoHo. Um, you also had the council member there and the borough president very involved in helping craft a, a community-driven plan. And I wanted to just hear a little bit about both of those projects and, and get a sense from you about, um, yeah, whether that is a sign that there is an evolution or a model for, for how rezonings can be done. Sure. So I'm very familiar with a lot of those rezonings. So when I was at City Hall, um, I was the um, land use advisor under Deputy Mayor. 
I keep being. And so I actually was the one kind of behind the scenes and doing a lot of negotiations around both Sohonoho and Gowanus. And I was really pushing those two because it was finally a moment where you had two um, kind of much more affluent neighborhoods and, and a recognition that we really need every neighborhood to do their part. And that had not been, that had not been how past rezonings had worked for a while. Um, so I think that they were, they were really important models to just try to start to reset what's possible. Um, and Open New York was also on the advocate side. They were also very involved in those two. I think we also saw a slew of more individual projects over the last year, last fall. So there was the Bruckner rezoning in um, Throgsneck in the Bronx that Open New York was was um, was really, really active in and put on the radar. Um, and a couple others in Tiffany Caban's district and, and a few others. And it did start to, it, it started to show that there are, that the politics of this really are changing, that you're starting to see a recognition that you have to figure out a way to get to yes on a lot of these. Um, and, you know, that looked different in different neighborhoods and different projects, but we we are starting to see a change. I think that looking at the neighborhood and some of these one-off projects, you're going to have those and they are, you know, they have their place. I think that they tend to be a little overemphasized um, in terms what we really need to do to really address the housing affordability crisis because there are so many tools at the city level and again especially at the state level that we just haven't even scratched the surface of how we tackle them and that is that is a lot why our agenda is more focused on sort of some of these comprehensive um, policy changes and especially things at the state level and and we're starting to see Kathy Hochul talk about these and put out some really exciting proposals that we're kind of waiting for more detail on that can actually really, frankly, change politics at a local level and start to have some accountability that every district really needs to do its part. And we can set up some new processes to do that that haven't existed to date and stop stop kind of pretending that we're, we're really making a dent in the housing crisis project by project. Okay, I, before we leave behind the, the question of the city council, I think what's been notable as a contrast is you have a couple of brand new members who are in fact going to be up for uh, re-election within two years of, of their initial election because of redistricting who have you know who opposed projects really demanded really a kind of unsustainable amount of affordable housing in terms of the the availability of subsidy and the project's ability to carry it and um you know in in one case the member ended up compromising in another case the member ended up killing the project which is now a truck depot in East Harlem so i guess with this new crop of members who are up for reelection right now i mean is there any work that you guys are doing or that you you know a, a sort of evolution that needs to happen with them or is it just kind of uh something to to you know, wait until the next election day to deal with we're we're definitely uh, we're definitely talking to a lot of different council members. There's a lot of education on the stuff. It's complicated. You know, we have a lot of resources to help, um, and you know, and our staff expertise to just kind of help people wade through all of the different considerations. Um, and we also are working on our plan for how we approach uh, the next city council election. So we're definitely thinking about all of that. I still I still do hold that I think it it gets a little over attention compared to some of the broader forces and frankly a lot of the uh, the neighborhoods where you're not talking about projects that are in front of council members because further upstream it was already politically impossible to even introduce them and that's yep. actually you know the fact that we end up talking about projects in certain neighborhoods not others um, is actually kind of silently much more part of the problem than than often gets recognized to me yeah. 
Okay, well, I want to uh, talk to you about this sort of plethora of empty space that seems to be uh, everywhere in New York City in the COVID era. And, you know, talking particularly one about office conversions, which the, the possibility has kind of caught the popular imagination. And two, I was really pleased to see, and I, I think I had missed this uh, back when uh, the city, my organization was doing our coverage, but you guys ended up developing an action plan for vacant apartments after our reporter, Sam Rabia, had exposed that tens of thousands of apartments, and in fact, as many as 89,000 uh, in 2021, and I should say rent-stabilized apartments. These were apartments that landlords were at some point holding vacant and that, you know, landlord groups have said, well, in some cases, and it's not many, that, you know, landlords simply did not find it economically viable to rent these out without um, being able to increase rents and invest uh, more in in uh, capital uh, improvements than they've been able to. So I wanted to throw both those things at you and ask if you sort of, I, I guess there's two questions. One is whether you think there's sort of a there there with office conversions, or is it more about kind of the popular imagination and, uh, you know, kind of getting getting on fire, but maybe the reality is a lot tougher. So let's let's start with that question. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of interesting kind of research in the in the city's proposals that just came out on office conversions. Um, I think it's, you know, I, ha I have no issue with it. I think there's a lot of, there's some smart things to do. There are other, a lot of other people talking about it. You know, it wasn't part of our agenda, largely because we're kind of focused on where we think some bigger moves need a lot more attention, especially at the state level, as I've talked about. But, um, you know, I don't think it's a, a silver bullet if anyone's pretending that it but there are some smart kind of reasonable changes to make to to address some of those areas. And then, yeah, and, and about the um, action plan for vacant apartments, I know there, there's five um, components to it, including creating a state registry um, and actually uh, having the city foreclose on landlords who are just not paying their taxes and keeping apartments vacant. Have you gotten traction on or even a toehold on, on any any of those components? Yeah, so we put this out last fall and really, I mean, frankly, we're and any any vacant apartment is a is also a supply problem. And we we think that, you know, you have to both build new housing and make sure we're doing what we can to bring online any vacant apartments. There has been a lot of um confusion and um complexity to some of the numbers sometimes. And I think that's what that's what we saw in a couple articles. We have um we have been talking to elected officials about some of our proposals around again, yeah, state, a comprehensive statewide rental registry, actions the city can take, um, really addressing some of our inequities in the property tax system, um, and also really focused on kind of city capacity, public capacity, which was also in our broader policy agenda, just to make sure that the city actually has the capacity to do everything in its power to bring these units back online. So we've we we've put this out. We've had some interesting conversations with different elected officials. You know, it's part of all of the mix of all of our conversations to really to some solutions here. And just to underscore, when you say inequities in the property tax system, I think what you're alluding to, but I of course want to hear you uh, drill into this. Um, we're talking about multifamily housing, for example, being taxed at, a, at effectively a higher rate than single family housing, for example. Yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of research um, and uh, more in depth than than I'll go into here. But I think writ large, we just have a very deeply inequitable property tax system, both between how it impacts homeowners versus renters, how it impacts neighborhoods differently, um, and and kind of how it impacts you know people who have more or less housing stability. So it's a it is a it is a tricky 
um, kind of root issue that underlies a lot of the housing challenges that we see, and we think it deserves more attention. Um, and just one final question for you. Um, and, you know, I this is recognizing that you already have a lot on your plate. And in fact, I think what really marks Open New York and the work that you've done in the short um, short time that you've been there and the slightly longer time the organization has been around is, is the sort of ambition of trying to kind of step back and weave together policies and a coalition and, you know, that there, you have plenty already on your plate. But just strictly from a kind of policy and real world point of view, I, I I keep reflecting on whether sort of it's enough to kind of be asking, okay, well, let's let's build more housing. Because I so often find, and, and maybe this is from a position of privilege in New York City, um, where when people say, I mean, certainly there are people who need to be here for different reasons for work or family and have to be in the five boroughs. And they and a huge number of people cannot afford New York City, period. And we need to make housing more affordable for everybody who lives here. Um, to the extent that the housing conversation is about people who have some discretion about where they live, whether it's neighborhood or city, um, they, they're middle class or above and have the ability to choose where they live. When I hear people say, well, I can't afford to live in New York City, they don't mean um, they literally can't afford to live here. What they mean is they can't afford the bundle of lifestyle, schools, transportation, um, culture, walkable neighborhoods, whatever it is they seek. Um, they cannot find that here in New York City, and therefore they are going to move elsewhere. And I think that is a really relevant issue, all the more so in the COVID era where people can do remote work. They have been moving to the suburbs, to upstate, um, out of state, while continuing to work in New York City. You don't need to live in New York City, in New York City housing, in order to access some of those benefits and visit occasionally or be transient and live here part-time. Um, so I want to throw that back out again to ask you, know, you when, you're, when we're thinking about building housing, do you put that into the context of, of that bundle um, of, you know, again, it's not just having a unit to live in in the middle of nowhere, uh, where you have to take two buses to get somewhere you want to go, but but really having housing within a livable urban life. How, how, do, how do you think about that if you even have a moment to think about that? Yeah, I, I think kind of writ large where you started, I'm 100%, you know, I spent so long in the weeds in city government, and I think being able to chart a, chart a, a vision and a path that doesn't quite exist yet is really what drew me to this role. I think for what you just mentioned about New York, I mean, there was, I was here throughout the whole pandemic and you know, there, there was this moment where it was like, um, you know, no one wants to live here anymore or people leaving. And I think the data just that, you know, population data show that that didn't really pan out. People do want to be here, right? Patterns are different. We need to pay attention to that. We need to look at it and be nimble and figure out what is short-term versus long-term trends. But people want to be here. I think something else that's really important to remember about New York is most people don't have a car. And that's true. That's, you know, there's no other city in the country where that's really true. So housing, housing is very much people's biggest expense. And I think when you're thinking of people that want to move here, I do think there are a lot of people who just flat out cannot afford to live in New York with housing costs. What they, um, there are other people who do want to live here and they can't live closest to you know, even some of the most basic amenities. And again, one of the, the data points I started with is some of our most affluent, extremely centrally located, meaning multiple transit lines, walkable to thousands of jobs, um, have lost housing units. So I think that the um, 
the disparate impact of, of the development patterns of the last, say, 20 years have actually shown that we are making it harder. These, these kind of deliberate policy choices are making it harder for people to live that lifestyle. And that's a choice, right? We can, that those are policies that are in the city's control to change. And so I think, you know, New York, New York was able to make room for so many previous generations and people from all over the world. And there are people who want to stay here and can't. And this is part of our reason why we think tenant protections are important. And this just isn't, it's just not true anymore. And, you know, the shortage is a huge piece of that and figuring out how we just really give people real choice in how and where they live and make sure that those choices are, you know, we're, we're, we're providing as many opportunities closest to some of the most valuable and exciting resources and opportunities that New York City has is so crucial. Okay. Well, Anne-Marie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today about Open New York and your work. Um, I look forward to seeing uh, more about it. And uh, yeah, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our host this episode was Alyssa Katz, deputy editor of The City. Our executive producer is Harry Siegel, and I'm our engineer, Adam Kimera. A special thank you to our guest, Open New York Executive Director Anne-Marie Gray. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.